This is Delegate Brian Crosby from St. Mary's County, the Mother County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of information on what's happening in Annapolis. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, it's Thursday, June 8th. And Michael, we're going to get into what is happening in Annapolis. Many people think, Michael, after session is over, after those 90 days, things just kind of calm down. But in addition to the haze and all the smoke that is in town, there's a lot going on, Michael. So we're going to we're going to get into that, sort of give everybody the, the lowdown on what is happening as we sit here in June, because there is quite indeed a lot going on. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, this is kind of a good time of year to do a little bit of a roundup like this. Um, you know, the legislative cycle comes to a close nominally when you know they drop the confetti on at midnight on Monday night, the last day of session. You know, a week and a half into April, and you know it's been now roughly two months since then. And we've gone through the whole cycle of bill signing ceremonies and the the like sort of post legislative session pageantry and and that kind of stuff. And we do get that question from time to time. It's like, well, I guess, you know, you all are just kicking back there, you know, folks who do policy work in Annapolis, um, everybody's, everybody's on vacation and so forth. And this is, if, if you want to get a vacation, this is basically the time of year to do it. But we are already starting to see like we're out of low gear and kind of into medium gear and rapidly approaching high gear again with our, our Mako annual calendar and with things going on in Annapolis. So it, it felt like, like running through and, and taking the pulse of several of these different things was, was worth it for an episode of the pod today. Yeah. And Michael, let's start with the big news today. Again, we're recording in the evening on Thursday night and the biggest news today and probably this week the State Board of Elections, Michael, they met today to choose a new administrator. And obviously, Linda Lamone has been the administrator since 1997. She announced that she's going to step down. And we've kind of had this drama, right, Michael, about the, you know who would be the next administrator. The State Board met earlier this week, and they postponed the decision until today. But we now have an answer in terms of who is going to replace Linda Lamone, at least beginning on September 1st of this year. Right. And, and a little process there that um, the, the the position of the election administrator had its own kind of weird state law governing the, the hiring and removal of, of that of that position, which is is like for, for reasons that go back years and years and, and so forth. But those laws got got tweaked this year. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, uh, Linda Lamone, like you said, has been an institution in, in that capacity for a really long time going back to and predating the like the most eventful election consequences in our political lifetime, the Bush v. Gore election challenges from the 2000 elections, and then a number of federal reforms and Maryland state-level reforms that happened in 2001. Uh, Ms. Lamone was the election administrator through that time and has been ever since. So she's been a real fixture um, the process for selecting a new 
uh, election administrator required four out of five votes on the the state board of elections. I guess one person had a irretrievable conflict on the on the vote that was scheduled for earlier this week. So there was like extended overtime drama, you know, through this week for for just getting the people lined up in a you know basically in a Zoom room to have have their vote. Right. <laughs> right. So Jared Demarinus got the votes today. It was a unanimous vote, and Jared is currently the state board's director of candidacy and campaign finance. So he's responsible for implementing a lot of the policy and then working with the candidates and campaign finance laws. A lot of people know him, obviously, a lot of legislators, because, you know, he's the guy who does campaign finance. So he's been there for about 18 years. I think we should be pretty optimistic. And then Michael Mako, I mean, we work closely with our local boards of election and also with the state board of election to to, you know, oversee and fund elections. That's a big part of what mm-hmm. counties do. And obviously we work closely. So I think we have a, a good reason to be optimistic here. Jared, a uh, friend of the podcast, right? And um, we know him pretty well. I think it's a, a really positive step, especially because it was unanimous. That was bipartisan. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I think I think he, I think, demonstrated his character over a lot of years, being the go-to person for people in and around the policy and political process. You know, like if you had a question about, hey, this seems like a tricky thing to do. So-and-so is serving as my campaign treasurer. We want to do this. And I'm not sure how the law reads. Can you walk me through it? He's been for a long time the go-to person. You could just say, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. I want to stay on the right side of the law, but I don't totally understand it. And and Jared was the person you could call up and he'd walk you through and sort of say, yeah, this is tricky, but the bottom line is do A and do B and you're going to be fine there. And I don't know, like that kind of judgment and sanity, I think will serve him well in the administrator role. So, I mean, it's it's more than just a caretaker of a process that runs itself. You need a smart, um, sensible professional in that capacity. I think he'll be up to that task. Yeah, you know, I, I cover election policy here at MAKO. I spend a lot of time in the election committees in both the House and the Senate. And anytime there is an election bill, Jared is on standby, right? Right next to the testimony right. table, just in case there is a question about any election law or a bill. So I think, yes, he has the knowledge. I think he has the relationships. And I think uh, a very positive message in terms of working with stakeholders and with the locals to, to, to move forward our shared goals, right? So that's a really yeah. positive step and pretty momentous time. Again, I think we should pay homage to Miss Lamone. She's been an institution. And like you said, she's been through so much and helped to shepherd the state through those big changes and, and tough times in election world. So give her kudos, but um, congratulations to Jared. I think it'll be great. I think so too. All right. So let's move on, Michael, and let's get into the next topic, the, the next one of our big issues that we're covering right now and, and counties are dealing with right now, it's county budget season, Michael. And there are two main themes that we're seeing in county budgets, at least so far as we wade into the season, more counties begin to pass budgets. Yeah, we've got we've got a, a handful who still have to do make the final steps in adopting their budget. But I think we have, generally speaking, we have the contours of of what's the decisions have looked like at the county level. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our counties are on a fiscal year that starts July 1 and runs through June 30th. So it's in the months of May and June when you're nailing down the final version of your budgets and so forth. Um, a couple jurisdictions sometimes come back and even after the budget's been adopted, they do quick add-ons and and you know some some final steps. But we're in the the back end of that process now, and I, like we, you and I have both have been in touch with this. 
I, I know you have been covering budget decisions by counties on the Conduit Street blog pretty regularly, and that category always gets full this time of year. So that's a quick place where our listeners could go if, if you want to look up the details of the Allegheny County budget. We'll have you know coverage for every county budget that as it's been proposed and passed. And then usually links back to the, you know, the full resources if you want to dig into the the deep details. Um, I think, you know, this year, in addition to those write-ups that mostly you've been generating on our blog site, um, I, I have been out to a handful of jurisdictions already with MACO's president, uh, Howard County Executive Calvin Ball. He and I have been before several jurisdictions already as part of our sort of year-long process to visit each jurisdiction and sort of hear from them about their priorities and challenges and so forth. And um, doing it in the springtime means everybody's talking about budget, right? So it's it's definitely on everybody's minds. Um, Hearing awful lot about education funding as the biggest driver of just about every county's fiscal circumstance. And that doesn't come as any surprise. If you're if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, we we walk you through every meeting of the Kerwin Commission when it was a study group. We walked through all the discussions about the legislation that eventually turned into the blueprint for Maryland. And now we're into the implementation. They've done some ratcheting and clanking along the way, but we're into the implementation of the big blueprint for Maryland plan. We know it's ambitious. We know it has a lot of policy outcomes, but it definitely calls for an awful lot of money. And some extra twists this year made that even a little more challenging in some ways. But it's, you know, the, it's, the, the, the ticket comes due at the county level now, even sooner than it's really going to be a challenge for the state. And we're already seeing counties um, squeezing the rest of their county budget in order to find – what they need to make the uh, you know, make the blueprint affordable for just for FY24. We're we're still ramping this thing up. Yeah, and it's 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 fascinating because you know counties are digging into reserves, right? And just you know last year, a few years over the past few years, it's it's been the narrative has been well, the state and the local governments are flush with cash. There's all this federal money coming in. Well, that that tap has now closed, right? So that's a big driver here. Um, the economy is weird. Right. So this massive increase for many counties in education spending, I mean, Prince George's County, 62 percent of their budget goes directly to to the school board. Right. So that's a big chunk right off the bat. And, you know, you said we've been covering this. You know, obviously counties expected this. But as you said, some quirks have have led to some challenges and surprises, I think, in terms of, you know, what counties are being asked to do. So it is certainly uh, interesting to think just a few years ago uh, we were talking about, you know, the narrative again being that everybody was flush with cash. Well, that has certainly changed. And again, weird economic headwinds, a weird market, the threat of a you know a debt default, and that that federal aid drying up. There's so many weird things that have happened. But as you said, counties are in a tough spot. Many of them, when it comes to to education funding, and then on top of that, there's been a a big push in most counties for counties to go above what's required, you know, as the minimum per the state law. So that puts a lot of pressure, I think. And I know that counties have been delivering everywhere that they can. We've seen supplemental budgets come in that provide more money for the schools, but it certainly pinches other budget items, right, Michael, and other priorities. Yeah, without a doubt. It's, it's It's just a weird circumstance. We know we're in, there's overall inflation in the American economy. And even if it may not be as sharp as it felt maybe six or 10 months ago, it's still very much present. And so 
you know, if you're if you're negotiating with unions who represent your public sector employees, um, you know, they're talking about well, just to keep pace, you know, we want to see adjustments of five, six, seven, eight percent on an annual basis. And if you're, you know, if your tax rates um, are basically staying the same and your tax bases are growing a bit, your property tax doesn't move super rapidly along with momentary spikes in inflation. So it's not exactly like the state budget where income and sales tax are their two workhorses and they move quickly when the economy spikes. Mm-hmm. Property tax is deliberately like a burrow. It's sturdy, but it's kind of plodding and deliberate. And we don't see big spikes up, but we don't see big cliffs down. Um, that is comforting in a lot of circumstances, but when it's not enough money to keep up with the needs of the moment, that is one of the most challenging things built into the local government budgeting cycle. If your number one revenue source is property taxes, which for virtually all of our counties, that's the case, um, you're not seeing an 8% growth in property taxes so you can pay employees 8% more, even if they make a legitimate claim that that's, you know, that's the right number to keep them basically on par from the year before. Right. And, you know, I can understand, uh, you know, the, the ask, right? I mean, we're talking about yeah. Kerwin. It was it was pre-COVID. Everything is different. So the numbers in terms of, you know, the salary goals that were in the Kerwin bill, things are way, way different now. So you can understand. But, you know, again, it, it does put a lot of pressure and you have to find ways to make things work. So it, it, it's a challenge. And I think that is certainly one of the biggest things going on in our world right now. And as you're out talking to counties, again, that, that seems to be the theme. I think it's 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 on everybody's mind, and there are like you, like you mentioned, some jurisdictions have used some reserves. That's that's not a long term practice. Like that's not your ten year plan. Is we're going to continue to find money under a couch cushion to make each year's budget work? Um, I think there's some of this. Is listen, we closed out last year with a little extra money in the sock because the economy was just stronger than we had guessed. And like the state of Maryland, we ended up with uh, you know a temporary surplus at the end of fiscal 22. So back in you know July of 22, you closed the books on last year. Well, what do you know? You you may have some one-time money that's above your standard. A lot a lot of our counties keep a rainy day fund of X percent of the budget. So we might keep eight percent of the budget in a reserve fund. You tell the bond rating agencies, see, we're doing this to help us through tough times. But maybe last July, you said, well, we've got more money for our rainy day fund right now. We don't want to commit it to ongoing stuff, but we're sitting at 10 or 11%. So maybe we've got some latitude to, if this is a tough year following an unusual largesse year, maybe you wash it out one time. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of what happened is happening in some jurisdictions right now, but there are some big numbers in places too. So I, I I don't think there's one story that tells the whole, you know, t- tells the entire tale here, but um, it can't just be you fashion together a budget with, you know, <laughs> with, with duct tape and, and Bondo and fishing line and chicken wire. Like that, that's not going to be the multi-year plan here. So it may be some jurisdictions have made this year work. And then when they look at next year, they say, you know, the blueprint is going to ask for another big step forward and the math isn't there. So we're going to have to go back and make a huge squeeze on non-education services in our county budget, or we're going to have to go to taxes already 
this early in this phase in. And that's not an easy thing to do either. Certainly not. And so we're going to continue to cover that on the blog. Stay tuned. And Michael, another big, big part of what's going on right now in Annapolis, we're starting to see task forces, commissions, study groups, work groups begin their work over the interim. These are, you know, groups that were established in legislation to provide a study of something and bring back reports of the General Assembly with recommendations. Michael, let's talk about a few that we're certainly keeping a close eye on. First, our legislative initiative to bolster career and volunteer firefighting across Maryland. That created a fantastic work group that's going to take a look at a lot of the issues and make recommendations on how we can move forward. Let's talk about that a little bit. They, they've began to meet and they've kicked things off pretty well, it seems. Yeah, I think um, we've got a good partner in the State Department of Labor who's going to put some shoulder into to trying to bring this together. We know we've got local governments who care a great deal about this. We know we've got both career and volunteer firefighters who are really committed to try and dig in. And, and like, we need to think outside the box. We need to come up with a set of solutions that, that can make the next 20 years look more promising than in all candor, like the last 20 have. We want to make this an option that is attractive to, to a new sort of a new generation of Marylanders to, to find a way to serve, either make a career as a, as a career professional firefighter or to join the fire service as part of a commitment back to your community, to your neighborhood and, and your neighbors and so forth. And we've, we've lost some of that in one way or another, getting it back is going to require, I mean, this isn't just like a wheelbarrow full of cash. Maybe that's part of the solution. But I think like marrying this with education and training opportunities uh, and and thinking about uh, like back end service, like so like mini pensions, we do some length of service awards for, for volunteer companies. Maybe that's something you rethink and you double down on. I don't know what the answers are, but we're going to get the right people in the room to do this. And that is it's a time-honored way to try and slay a tricky beast through the legislative process. Get everybody together, try and get something everybody can agree on. You come back, you speak truth to power in January and say, we all met and we all agree these are the four things to do, right? Yeah, in my opinion, that is the best way to solve a really tricky policy issue. You get the smartest people around a table and you figure it out. So we're big fans. Next, Michael, there's the task force to study solar incentives in Maryland. Counties obviously have a huge stake here for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, we've talked extensively, I think, about some of the challenges on local land use policies when it comes to large scale solar facilities and counties' ability to sort of guide where those facilities are. And then, of course, Michael, there is a revenue component when it comes to solar panels and these giant solar installations. There are many ways that counties can work with the industry to produce revenue and, you know, that that revenue is necessary, that these are giant installations and they certainly have an effect on the local community. So this commission is going to look at a lot of those things and also things like equity in the industry. And basically the idea is, is the state doing enough to incentivize solar? Because the state has some hefty goals when it comes to solar installations and climate goals generally. Right. And and this is, this is different in, in my view. Like we, we've, We've seen like you and I have been working together on on local government issues, including fiscal policy for a number of years. And I've been doing this stuff for a really long time. I've seen cycle after cycle after cycle of 
different industries who claim it's time to relook at the tax policy because we've outgrown what we did back in the 60s or 80s or 90s or 2000s or whatever. And, and this is another iteration of a kind of a familiar refrain. But what's different here is, like you mentioned, Maryland has already created a really strong sort of, I don't mean this as a pejorative, but like an artificial market saying we're going to need an awful lot more solar and clean energy because we've created the renewable portfolio standards. If you want to be in the business of selling energy to Marylanders over the next like 15 years or 20 years, whatever the phase in, I've forgotten the details, but like over the next practical stretch of time, you need to be ramping up clean energy as a bigger and bigger and bigger share of what you contribute, you know, what you put for sale to Maryland users. So it's already the case that the demand is going to drive development for more and more solar and potentially more wind and other clean stuff. But solar in particular um, is definitely going to be a needed resource for those who want to sell energy in Maryland. So yep. how much do you need a tax incentive laying on top of that, I think is a really interesting policy question. So I'm I'm open to these things about, hey, without, without a tax break, this won't happen here. Folks will just go to Tennessee or they'll just go to South Carolina or whatever. We, we get those, you know, those policy debates happen all the time. This one's different because someone is going to sell energy in the state of Maryland in 2024 and in 2034 and in 2044. It's going to happen. And we've set the rule saying it's got to be clean energy, that it's got to come from somewhere. We can't get our solar from Wyoming. At least at the moment, there's no practical way to just carry it on a cable, you know, 1,800 miles without a massive loss of value in doing so. So we need to get our solar pretty nearby. Um, the tax component is the latest part of this larger discussion, but the whole thing is a really interesting policy discussion. And so we're a big part of all that, yeah. Right. And so I should mention, too, there are already generous incentives when it comes to the solar industry and in particular emphasis on stuff like community solar. You know, obviously, yeah. I think that the best places that we'd like to see solar go are brownfields, grayfields, you know, uh, rooftops, stuff like that, that we're not putting pressure on, you know, prime ag lands and soils. So it is a fascinating subject matter. And Mako does have representation on this task force. So we'll be updating throughout uh, the, the the task force's work, and they're going to report before the next session. Michael, another huge issue, Dominic and I talked about this a little bit last week, transportation funding and how it is affected as we shift mm -hmm. to electric vehicles. And there is going to be a big and, and you know blue ribbon, if you will, work group commission that's going to take a look at this. And I think transportation funding issues generally, but certainly a big component of that is what happens when people aren't paying the gas tax because they're not driving gasoline cars, right? They're they're not using fossil fuels. They've shifted to electric vehicles. How do we fund our roads? Because the gas tax funds roads and, and road repair and maintenance, right? Yeah. So that that is, I mean, I, I think that is the easiest piece of this policy debate to pick out and sort of, you know, sit around and and scratch your chin and contemplate how do you how do you thread this needle? It's interesting. And, and we've all engaged in some of that. And this commission has to do that. But like we shouldn't skip over the, the more boring and routine parts of looking at transportation revenues. And I mean, part of this is it's been 10 years 
since the state of Maryland made a change to its revenue structure. And we, we do have a tax on motor fuel that has a partial adjustment based on cost of living adjustment. And that's, you know, that's been a matter of some controversy and so forth, but we've, we've, we've partially solved the forward looking need for revenues by making that change that automatically happens each July. But we still have a weird structure that not every state does transportation funding the way Maryland does. We have one giant transportation trust fund. And I think with the exception of just a couple pieces of our overall Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, the the bridges where they collect their own tolls for their own maintenance and, and operation, there's sort of a separate authority for basically for toll revenues. And I think the the Motor Vehicle Administration has some degree of of self-containment. But all the other modes of transportation that the state supports, maintains, expands, and so forth, all come out of the same pot. So we don't have like six different silos for the airport and the Port of Baltimore and the state highways and for local roads and for um, and for transit systems in one region or paratransit systems in lots of regions, we have basically all of those those different modes and those different forms of surface transportation and you know the the water and air and so forth basically all served out of the same nest. So that's a lot of different baby birds, you know, trying to get the worms in that one nest. And you know whether whether the long term future is let's try and come up with a solution around the 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 road users who don't use motor vehicles and we've lost that that connection as a as a user fee or whether it's even bigger and broader thinking um i don't know what the pieces are there but some of this is just the 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 maintenance required to have the the transit system that we want in the metro dc area the metro baltimore area and the other parts of the state where there are add-on transit offerings like that has become a bigger and bigger share of that one pot of money. And it puts a squeeze on other surface transportation as well as the airport and the port and so forth. So there's, there's a lot of pieces to this. It's not as simple as just let's look at electric cars. That's the, that's the flavor of the moment. It might be the headline issue, but it's definitely not the whole agenda. Right. And when counties own and maintain five out of six road miles in the state, obviously we're big stakeholders because our funding comes from that transportation trust fund. And we've talked extensively about highway users. Yep. We don't need to get into that, but obviously we're very invested uh, in this, in this group and we'll be big stakeholders at that table because like yeah. you said, Michael, a lot of interesting pieces here. Yeah. And, and like at the, at the one oh one level, counties don't have our own gas tax. We have no transportation revenue. There's no add on when you get your, your license plate that goes back to your county or to your city. There's no transportation revenue structure for local governments other than getting a piece of that central pie. So that's why we're so dependent on highway user revenues. And we beat that drum. Sometimes people are like, why do you guys care so much? It's like, it's our only game in town. Right. And the state set it up that way. So, you know, that's what we deal with that. It is, it is a huge issue obviously for us. So we'll keep everybody abreast of that as well. And then Michael, let's move on to some regulations when it comes to cannabis and paid family leave. I think that's another big big piece of what's happening in Annapolis. 
let's not forget, Michael, that adult use cannabis becomes legal July 1. People are supposed to be able to go and legally purchase cannabis as long as they are an adult. So, Michael, the, the state has to develop some emergency regulations pretty quickly. Again, uh, you know, General Assembly passes a bill in April and by July 1, there, there have to be some regs. So they're doing that now. And we'll, we'll expect some further and more substantive regulations in the fall. Right. Right. It sounds like this is going to happen in stages and in phases and so forth. But, you know, the big the big implementation bill, the the sort of must pass behemoth that, that, that went through the legislature this year in the 2023 session, that becomes effective July 1. That doesn't mean that there's suddenly going to be 50 places at every shopping mall that are that are legally selling cannabis. It's going to be a rollout of licenses and so forth. But um, some of those pieces of the law will all will all take effect July one, and I, I think we'll start to see the commercial side of this happen this calendar year. So, um, you know, the details still TBA, but but this is on a lot of people's minds. Implementation is sometimes underappreciated as a part of the policy process. You know, folks like us get all engaged talking with the political players and with the stakeholders and cutting deals with other interest groups when it comes to passing the bill and what's going to be written into the bill and so forth. A lot of serious work happens on the back end. The bill has been signed. We've had the, the signing ceremony and we you know, sort of cut the ribbon. And then a lot of the political players walk away and a lot of professionals in the state agency still have to do the hard work of nailing down all the specific details in, you know, in, like you mentioned, in emergency regulations to be followed by more permanent ones later. So um, we're, we're, we're still putting this stuff together and July is not that far away. Absolutely. So a lot more to come there. Obviously, counties, big stakeholders again when it comes to cannabis. And I, I, I bet you, Michael, that we'll see some bills in the next session. Maybe you could call them fix-it bills or other bills to sort yep. of tweak some things as we enter into this new market. And that's to be expected. Uh, another big issue, Michael, paid family leave. This is another giant piece of legislation, sort of must pass, as you said, about cannabis. Yep. Same thing here. Uh, again, the, the Department of Labor is working through regulations for paid leave. Counties are working with the state here and have a big seat at the table here as well, Michael. Um, this is, yeah, this is another one that that is all hands on deck to get this this large program pulled together. And from the local government perspective, we have a particular take on this that the the structure that the state of Maryland is creating for for paid family leave is really similar to for people who are in the employment universe it's going to look really similar to unemployment insurance that that the unemployment program basically provides you a benefit if you're out of work and it's kind of at the expense of your most recent employer or employers but the way it's done for most employers is everybody pays a premium into one big pot and then the state uses a giant trust fund to pay out of people's benefits. So if you run a construction company and you are routinely hiring people for one big job, and then 10 weeks later when that job is done, you let a bunch of people go, they collect unemployment insurance, but they get it from a state trust fund. And then your experience dictates how much you pay into the trust fund. So you're not stroking checks to the employees that you laid off and who are now unemployed. The state is doing that, but they recover it through the greater employer universe, including you. So that's the general model that the state has in mind for this family leave program. 
but they're expecting that a lot of employers who already offer generous leave benefits will want to opt out and just continue to do their own thing. So the state needs to basically say, what what boxes do you need to check to satisfy that you're you're meeting the same you know sort of generosity and content that we're going to create as an entitlement for effectively all employees of medium and large employers in the state. So all those are the deep details that need to get sorted out in the next few months before the state starts collecting premiums from everybody who's in the statewide program. And in like a year and a half, we actually start having benefits go out the door. So a lot of work going on there, drafting emergency regulations, trying to put pen to paper and implement the legislation that the General Assembly passed. And on top of all of that, Michael, we recently announced that MAKO is welcoming suggestions for legislative initiatives for the 2024 legislative session. So, of course, <laughs> we're already thinking about that. There's really, you know, it's just sort of closing a loop. It's just it's it's, it's very circuitous, right? Like it doesn't stop. Now we're thinking about 2024. Right, right. Six or seven weeks after the 23 session ends and they, you know, we've just barely swept up the, the confetti. <laughs> now we're out there saying, all right, what should we be focusing on for next year? Because I mean, it makes sense, though. You, you you gin up those engines. You want our stakeholders to be thinking about, hey, we were we were working on this issue. We felt like we were close. We'd really love Mako's help in trying to get it over the finish line next year. We know a topic like our, our concern about the next generation of fire service. Like, we know that step one was to bring together everybody into a commission to make recommendations. Hopefully, we'll have a, a nice, strong, robust set of recommendations that our counties can get behind. And we'd probably want to adopt. Let's like the bill to implement that stuff should be one of our priorities for next year. I'd like to see that as one of Mako's legislative initiatives, but uh, yeah, who knows what other things may make it through the process. We bring together folks from lots of our local jurisdictions to sift through what will probably be several dozen recommendations and suggestions and try and turn that into you know, by January, we want to have a sheet of paper we can walk around with and talk to legislative leaders and say, here's our short list of priorities. Yeah, and it really is a member-driven process. I really appreciate that about the way MAKO does its legislative initiative. So from now, we're going to get the ball rolling. And then by, you know, next session, MAKO will have up to four legislative initiatives for the 24th session. And so, Michael, we're, we're doing that. And then, of course, we are preparing for the MAKO Summer Conference. The Legislative Initiative Subcommittee <laughs> will meet at the MAKO Summer Conference as part of its work. And, you know, the Summer Conference is also just around the corner. So a lot of work going into that as well, at least as far as MAKO is concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's all going to happen at the MAKO Summer Conference. If if this is your first time for that rodeo, um, prepare to be impressed and maybe a little bit overwhelmed. But we're we're lucky enough to hold a station in the middle of the summer at a really desirable location. Folks love to come down to Worcester County and spend time in Ocean City. Um, you think it's going to be a trip to the beach, and then you start going through the program for the conference, and you realize, I might not get any sand between my toes because I got this 8 a.m. session, and then right after that, I need to meet with these folks. And then I've got two cabinet secretaries who I'm connecting with while I'm at the conference. Then I'm moderating this session. I'm going to this other thing that the University of Maryland is doing as part of the academy I'm part of. You know, by that, by the time you're done with this stuff, you're shaking hands with the governor on the way out the door on Saturday afternoon. You're like, I've been in the convention center for four days, and I'm not even sure I saw that there was an ocean here. 
Yeah, I mean, and then you throw in the Tech Expo, which has been a huge success and growing every year. The Taste of Maryland, always a huge hit. An exhibitor floor that is bustling at the seams. You know, they they, they had to expand the exhibit hall. Live demos, tons of content, as you said. So definitely going to be the place to be. I imagine this will be the biggest ever. And uh, nobody wants to miss the crab feast on Friday afternoon, Michael. That's sort of a hallmark as well. So really excited, but there's a lot of work that goes into that. And so that is... A big part of what we're we're working on but michael in terms of what else is going on is there anything that you think we didn't get into i think we covered the bases pretty well here today yeah um i think i think that's a it's a good to touch a lot of the bases i mean in talking about budgets i mentioned the process of mako getting out to visit with our elected officials in each jurisdiction and I'll say we're underway. We've done a few of those visits. Um, you know, you and I are going to be doing a couple of, couple of them during the, the 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 municipal league conference later in June. That's another event that's that's worth making a point to get to the Maryland Municipal League conference in in Ocean City in late June. We'll visit with some of the lower Eastern Shore counties while we're out there. Um, in particular, I I like these visits in the first year of a four year term. We have. Close to half of our county elected officials turned over in the 2022 election. So we're getting a chance to sort of get past just meet. Hey, how do you do? Here's what Mako is, you know, drop a line when we can help. And then you get an email or that sort of thing. So we've got a superficial connection with a lot of our newly elected officials. And this first year is always like, for me, it's invigorating to get out and get to know like what's, what's on people's minds. Um, you know, I had, had exchanges just earlier today, uh, our County executive ball and I were in Carroll County and, you know, they had a list of different issues to talk about. And some of them are the same from other counties we've met with, but you know, we, if you, if you, you visit one County, you've seen one County, you didn't get to see all 24 in one stop. It's, there, there's there's some there's some peculiar local issues almost everywhere we go, and it's a really healthy thing for the statewide organization to be getting input through that process. Not just come to our conference and hear the speakers we put up for you, but for the Mako president and the the staff and leadership in the organization to get out and be on the agenda or go grab breakfast or whatever and hear from the county commissioners and the county of the day and what's on your mind down here. And when they have some issue, we haven't talked about animal control. Oh, really? You got a, a crisis with that? I mean, I'm sitting there taking all these notes. I I eat this stuff up. I love it. Yeah, it's essential, right? It really is. I really enjoy the visits. As you said, it, it, it is really important to get out there and visit each and every county to get the true perspective and make a shtick alert. One size does not fit all, right? And I think that's very evident when you go and talk to folks in each and every county. So I look forward to that, Michael. Also, MML is going to be great this year, as you mentioned, later in June. They're very excited. I think their content looks great. And so definitely endorse the MML conference and, and hitting that. But we look forward to it. And Michael, I think we can leave it there for this evening if you think uh, we've covered the bases. Sounds good. No June swoon here. We are still back at it. All right. We'll leave it there. And if you enjoy the podcast, you can go ahead and subscribe. That way, everything will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. We will link information about county budgets and, of course, the Mako Summer Conference, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more in episodes to come. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.